0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Season of the Witch with Rowan Oaken. I'm your host Rowan and if you're a UK listener, you may very well be listening to this as we have just entered Lockdown Part 2. Lockdown, here we go again, lockdown, how I haven't missed you. <laughs> we all know that the sequels are never... As good as the first one, except in rare circumstances like Terminator 2, but we do not have a remodeled Arnold Schwarzenegger to save us from this one, so stay safe, uh, wash your hands, and the rest of you actually, not just your hands, your big skanks. Most importantly, look after your noggin, and, and talking of mental health today, I, I will be... I'm going to be moving the podcast to, um, to bi-weekly, you know, twice a month. And this has, uh, this has been such a passion project for me. However, I'm also someone who has a lot of different passions that bounce around. You know, I love to run. I love to hike. I love to cook. I have a four-year-old son and I live with my best friend, my husband. And since starting the podcast, I've noticed I, I spend less time running. Other things kind of feel like a chore, so I need to make sure that I can continue my work here, which I love, whilst also ensuring that I give the care to the other parts of my life. This content is so important to me and it takes a lot of time for me to, to read, research and analyse and I don't ever want to push out episodes for you folk that just kind of feel like filler. So to do this, I need more time to be, to be informed. And I hope you all continue to listen and be part of this journey with me as we, uh, we go from having four a month to two a month instead. Now, if two podcasts a month just isn't good enough for you, then don't worry. I do still post regularly over on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at SOTW with Rowan. You know, I'm a big fan of posting silly videos, pictures of my craft, recipes, and spells. Recently, I, I went live with Helena for a Midnight Society special on Halloween on the 31st of October, which was beyond brilliant. And there I tell the, uh, the story of the chillers of Greaves Hall. Check it out if you, if you like a good spook and we've we've already started discussing the idea of doing another special episode for yule um yule and christmas time where we will be telling spooky christmas themed stories and if that is something you are here for don't forget to check me out at sotw with rowan on the socials for more details as i'm recording this episode the the u.s polls are closing and ballots are being counted It's been great seeing everyone encouraging each other to vote, encouraging each other to educate themselves and encouraging their country to make informed decisions for a better future. It's a shame it's all happening in 2020 because there just really hasn't been a great winning streak for anyone this year. You know, I I personally checked the manifestos out for both Biden and Trump and for me, neither of them have anything in there for witches, so I don't give a shit about either one. Well, in today's episode, we are getting a little bit political, a little topical and a little bit tropical. Mm. Our Witch of the Week segment this week will be focusing on some of the pagan origins of the UK Bonfire Night, also known as Guy Fawkes Night. Our main section of today will continue the theme of fireworks as we jump into spiritual practices in Taiwan whilst I meander into the murky, problematic realms of cultural appropriation in the craft. I don't know how well I'm gonna handle this topic at all, but let's go for it. And finally, stick around at the end of the episode where I will be getting into a bit of a mood booster spell for, you know, well, frick knows we all need it. Remember, if you liked any of today's content, don't forget to subscribe, follow, or leave ratings and comments in Apple Podcasts. All of these help boost the show's exposure, which gives me a little boost up the butt to keep doing this. Remember, remember, the 5th of November. Gunpowder, treason and plot? I think that was it. Either way. Tomorrow is Bonfire Night, so in the spirit of British tradition, I will be telling you the story of what is known as Guy Fawkes Night as well. Now, besides being a seasonal addition to the show, I have chosen Guy Fawkes for his connection to a recurring character on the show, and that is James the First. Yes, the James the First, the same James that wrote Demonology, and the same James involved in the Witch Trials. Shall we get into it? Okay. Well, let's jump to 1603. You thought that the year 2000s was a bit of a shit century. Well, the 1600s, it wins. But at this time, the English Catholics, they're re-excited because Elizabeth I is dying. That sounds really awful. But what's good about it is that her successor, supposedly James VI of Scotland, who then becomes James I of England, will take over. And apparently, he likes Catholics. Good. And for about 33 years, Catholics have, they've, they've been persecuted. They, they're not allowed to hear mass. They're forced to attend ang- Anglican services, and they're given these big massive fines if they don't do it and my I, My mind instantly starts thinking about the the American elections as I'm saying this, you know the subjugation of minorities, and I'm hearing an echo that I, that I don't like I don't like James goes and ascends to the throne which I like as a word, ascends, almost like floating up to. And it's indeed, you know, he's pretty nice to the Catholics. He stops finding them and and more and more people become Catholics. Bob on, think the Catholics. James starts getting a little bit stressed out because there were all these different religious demands in his country, you know, let alone witchcraft. Things get worse then. In a court conference, he turns around feeling the pressures and, and he's trying to satisfy the Puritans at this point. So he says we've all been there, we've all, we've all said things that we regret, you know, but this is pretty bad. He says that he has an utter detestation of Catholicism. That's a little bit far, just a tad. Just does remind me sometimes though, of another political leader, not naming names. Days later, people start getting fined again. And most people at this point are like, okay, it's fine, we'll just get fined, and they, and they carry on regardless, carry on being Catholics. But that doesn't suit everyone. Now, Robert Catesby Catsby? Catesby? He's a devout Catholic, and he's, he's familiar with the price of his faith, and his father, he'd been imprisoned for harboring a priest, so having him in his home, and he himself had to leave university without a degree to avoid taking the Protestant oath of supremacy. Hardcore, and this guy, he's a real magnetic person. He's personable, a good speaker, and that's very crucial, in what happens next, in what happens in him being able to recruit and lead a small band of conspirators. Now these people he musters together all meet on the 20th of May 1604, and this is all happening, just to kind of give you some timeline context, around eight years before the Pendle Witch Trials. Catesby is joined by his mates Thomas Wintour, Jack Wright, Thomas Percy, at the Duck and Drake in the Strand, meeting up in the pub. I uh, can't do that anymore. The fifth person was Guy Fawkes. Also, awesome. It's their group of six, but you can't do that in the lockdown anyway now. Um, Guy Fawkes, originally from York, and he has then been recruited in Flanders, where he had been serving in the Spanish army. And they're chatting about blowing up the parliament because they're peeved as to what's been happening. And, and you know, this isn't just pub banter, though. You know, they go and they lease a house off Westminster and make Fawkes the caretaker. Honestly, nothing great really starts with a bit of banter in a pub. What they do is they give Forks the new alias, and you're going to love this. The, the name they give him so he can blend in with everyone else is John Johnson. How stupid is that? That's the worst, most obvious alias that I could possibly ever think of. You know, why not just call him, like, Shifty McShifterson? No one's going to buy that, but they do. They do actually buy it. In March 1605, the the group took a lease out on a ground floor cellar close by the house they'd rented from John Wynard. And this cellar lays directly underneath the House of Lords. And over the following months, 36 barrels of gunpowder are moved in, enough to raise the building to the ground and shoot James first. To the moon. Now, Fawkes, kind of getting cocky, decides to recruit more to their boom boom crew and goes over to Flanders. But no one, no one gives a shit. No one cares. No one's interested. But then he's spotted over there by English spires who dob him into James, the first minister. And they make this link between Fawkes and Catesby. Catesby and Catesby. So at this point, Catesby goes on and he recruits some wealthy dudes, Rookwood and Digsby, who are these wealthy guys with lots of horses. And the horses part is quite important to the story as they're going to be using them in this uprising that's going to happen after the explosion. So they can go over and kidnap James's daughter, Princess Elizabeth, and they're going to use her as a puppet queen while Fox goes off to the rest of Europe, arguing the plotter's case to get them on his side. It sounds like something you come up in the pub, It really does. On the 26th of October, an anonymous letter is received saying to avoid opening Parliament. And the plotters are then warned of this, but they don't give a toss. They just turn up anyway in London, ready to do it. They think there's nothing untoward going on and are ready to go. At this point, Westminster is searched and the first search spots a suspiciously large amount of firewood in a certain cellar. The second at around midnight found Fawkes immediately arrested and he gives only his alias John Freakin' Johnson. Way to go Fawkes. Make yourself look more suspicious but Percy's name had already been linked with the cellar and house and a warrant for his arrest was immediately issued. The plotters escaped from London for the Midlands. Hurrah! Uh, Rookwood was the fastest covering 30 miles in two hours on a single horse which apparently is really good Really good. So he's able to catch up with his co-conspirators. And these six plotters, so we've got Catesby, Rockwood, the Wright Brothers, Percy and Bates all rode towards Warwickshire. As the first bonfires of Thanksgiving for the discovery of the plot were being lit in London, John Johnson, Guy Fawkes, was being interrogated, which, might I add, pagan as hell. Bonfires for thanks. You know, come on, James. Who are you kidding? Your people are way too pagan for you to handle. By the 6th of November, Fork's silence had prompted James I to give permission to torture, gradually proceeding to the worst. Even this, however, failed to extract any useful information. And what, dude, I would fold like a souffle. In the Midlands, the plotters raided Warwick Castle, which by the way is gorgeous. Must visit. My husband and son used to go every year before blinking COVID. By now they wanted men. No. Nope. <laughs> Wanted men. They've they've all become gay now. Um, By now, they were wanted men. And um, with their stolen horses, they rode to Holbeck House in Staffordshire. Correct me if I've pronounced that wrong, Holbeck, Um, which they think would be more easy to defend. It's a bit smaller. Um, It's not a blinking castle. On arrival, they discovered that their gunpowder was soaked. They uh, they decide to, uh, to lay it to dry in front of a fire. You heard that right. They dried off explosives by the fire. You guess what happened next? Boom. It explodes and it blinds one of them, John Grant. 200 men led by Sir Richard Walsh, the High Sheriff of Worcestershire, arrived at Holbrook House ready for a standoff. Catesby, the Wrights, and Percy died from their wounds in the explosion. Thomas Wintour, Rockwood, and Grant were captured, and five others remained at large. By December, the others are captured in December, ransacking loads of Catholic homes in the process, which I think really is just to kind of like scare the Catholics a little bit, you know, look at what we're doing, Blah. And then this kind of capitalises on this big widespread shock and this fear of the naughty Catholics as well. Franson Tresham dies of illness in the Tower in December, and Robert Wintour was captured in the New Year on the 27th of January, 1606. The trials began, and Westminster Hall was crowded as spectators are all listening to Sir Edward Cook's speech. Under instructions from Salisbury, the Attorney General lay principal responsibility on the Jesuits before describing the traditional punishment for traitors. Hanging, drawing, and quartering. Ugh. Drawing and quartering. Mm. The worst part of all this is that they ha- you know, they don't hang them like the snap your neck, you're done. They do it. Like, this, this is, if you don't want to hear the gruesome details, skip forward a little bit. They do it. So you're, you're a tad dead. You're a little bit dead, but not enough dead. And then while you're kind of hanging from the neck, They cut your genitals off and they burn them in front of you and if that's not bad enough which it should be that's bad they then decide to um they cut out your bowels and your heart you're still a a little bit alive at this point you think someone would be like that's fine let's get back to work you know no they then decapitate you and then dismember you so that your body can be displayed in public and eaten by birds until there is nothing left of you this is what they were doing, like four hundred years ago, by the way. You know, that's like that's like four great grandparents away, maybe you know, five great grandparents away. That's assuming that all grandparents are a little hundred. Uh, yeah, five or six great grandparents away, and it's so strange to think that there's such savagery in our blood. Ooh. Only, um, only Digby pleads guilty, and his trial followed at that of the other seven. All were found guilty of high treason. Digby, Robert Wintour, Bates and Grant were executed on the 30th of January, with Thomas Wintour, Rookwood, Keys, and Fawkes all dying the next day. It was ordinary Catholics, though, who, who suffered the longest. You know, as a result of the gunpowder plot, new laws were passed preventing them from practising law, serving as officers in the army or navy, or voting in local or parliamentary elections. What I think is to be remembered here is this little tidbit of history, is the relationship James I had in demonising and othering those around him. From pagan belief systems to Catholic belief systems, his powers rumbled on through centuries. Little echoes of hatred and the abject that have caused communities to attack each other. I mentioned the gunpowder plot around the dinner table with my in-laws last week and made the slip of calling it a holiday, which I was corrected for. But it was exactly that. It was a holiday. When Guy Fawkes was captured, James instructed his people to light fires in London to celebrate his capture. The lighting of bonfires at this time was still a pagan practice, hanging on for Samhain, and within this time it is appropriated into a monarchy honouring practice. However, within time, the practice became one of political motive. Bonfire night revellers would light fires and throw in effigies of distasteful political figures absolute Wickerman vibes when i was a child we used to dress up a guy uh, of a bonfire night a guy is a, a kind of like a scarecrow i guess essentially it's a it's a straw effigy of of guy fawkes and although i think instead of straw we used to use newspaper to, to stuff it In our village, we'd have this huge bonfire and we'd throw these on and there'd be, I think there'd be competitions as well. And, you know, the best dressed. (laughs) I don't know uh, who wore it best. There there was this whole tradition of of penny for a guy too, where you would wheel him around and and then you would toss money into the wheelbarrow. Honestly, you know, saying all of this back, I'm fully aware that there was no chance of me becoming anything other than a witch, was there? (laughs) I do feel that, on the whole, the bonfire practices in the UK have really simmered down. The village I grew up in stopped doing it around the 2000s, and I'm sure there are other parts of the UK that still continue this tradition. And let me know if you live somewhere where they do this. I must have been in my twenties my when I realized that bonfire night wasn't actually a, a worldwide thing, which is really naive, I know. You know what a narrow-minded, non-global thought process it was one that made uh that I think. Makes for a fascinating starting point actually for our Witch of the Week as we explore the diffusion and appropriation of the craft. But before we get there, I'm going to take you on a journey. Come with me. Let's go. Yes, don't worry. You are still listening to Season of the Witch with Rowan Oaken. You have now, though, been transported with me to Taiwan. Mm, It's beautiful. Uh, Fei Tang Piaoliang means uh, extremely beautiful, and it is indeed extremely beautiful. Some of my best years of my life were spent living and working in Taiwan. I lived in this gorgeous little one bed flat that overlooked the city and the, the sprawling mountains. There was nowhere that I have ever been that so closely matched modernity and spirituality and adventure together, not even Japan, which I was convinced I was going to fall head over heels with. There, there's this wonderful little village that is up in the the mountains, which is just south of Taipei, which is the capital of Taiwan. And this village is called uh, Ulai. It's a, a hot spring hotspot where the, where the rivers run warm. And the first time I went, I felt utterly transported to a realm that I can't even begin to describe. You you get this cable car up into the mountains of an abandoned theme park and the rolling fog comes in as you are high as the rain clouds. And just everything about it spoke to my spirit. And I've told my husband that when I go, when, when I'm gone, I want my ashes to be sent to Wulai, and and that's where my soul belongs. I'm here to to kind of move this segue over to talk about fireworks. You know, well, that's my starting point. If you've if you've ever visited or lived in Asia, it's extremely likely that you know the sound of the firecracker well. The constant banging that goes on, especially during elections, and um, this becomes a bit of a distant echo. The more you the more you hear it, you kind of forget about it in the distance and i do remember my first day in taiwan waking up walking up my road and there was a there was a procession that led from the circle to the temple at the bottom the parade was full of floats with dancing the, the banging of drums and the screeching of firecrackers it was strange just how pedestrian it all was few people watched few people stopped this was right in the middle of the busy road where it finishes the temple it's this lavish building adorned with the smallest intricate details that the eye struggles to focus on. The smell of incense, the smell of incense just constantly blowing out of the temple like a fire, and it fills the street with a, with a busy atmosphere of all these different assaulting fried fragrances. I think what I will do is I'll post this on Instagram. I'll post some pictures of this temple of the road that I lived on, maybe even the apartment that I lived in, and, and of Wulai as well, me and the hot spring in the river. So, so check out that over at SOTW with Rowan on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. What I found quite fascinating whilst out there was that all of these temples as well, they, you know, they were dedications, unlike many Western faith systems, many of the Eastern, particularly Southeastern faiths are polytheistic meaning they worshipped more than one god or goddess. You'd have temples that honoured the god of water, the goddess of the home, and there was there was even one that helped those with sitting exams, which I loved, uh, and that was particularly busy around July. What was wonderful though was that the, um, the way they were used, many of them were quite open spaces of worship, a place to just come and go you know, to, to light incense, honour, and just leave. They they had a certain uh, domesticity uh, that I enjoyed. I n- I never took part in the religion at all. I only ever watched. My, my Mandarin wasn't good enough back then to ask enough questions about it. I don't think it's good enough now. the uh, The Chinese calendar follows a lunar calendar, which is which is hell. I know. I love it. And in traditional Chinese culture, firecrackers are lit to, to scare away evil spirits. As the legend goes, a monster called Nian Shou. Um, that's the kind of lion beasty thing you see on New Year. The word meaning like like year beast Nian is is year, um, and this would come out to the village. It would destroy the houses on New Year's Eve. And the villagers discovered that burning dry bamboo to produce an explosive sound scared away the monster. Since then, it has become a tradition at Chinese New Year to to set up fireworks and firecrackers. Other cultures have similar elements that are drawn towards this uh, use of sound. Think church bells. Uh, ringing bells during ceremonies, the witch's bell, the the drum, and clapping to break hexes and curses. Sound has the ability to move the air and vibrations around it. Sound also has the ability to scare away. It has the ability to cause me to curse at 7am when I have a stonking hangover and someone's letting a firecrackers on Dong San Lu as well. It's, uh, that's another thing to note. I bring some of these ideas in because... I'm, I'm going to be looking at those themes of cultural diffusion and how cultures have some kind of similar elements throughout that resonate. You know, the use of setting off fireworks is, is an interesting one in terms of warding, I think, as well, to be considering, especially when we're referencing the, the use of them with Bonfire Night as well. Warding and celebration, you know, and I am all for sound cleanse. I have a a little bell that I use at my altar to clear out negative energies. But I also do something that's a little bit more domestic. And this is another no BS Rowan situation here. You know, if you ever feel like a space just needs neutralising, there's some negative energies hanging about, and it's not feeling right, cause a commotion. Something I will do is just clap really loudly in a space to shake the energy up. No bells required. Before I move on, in the name of Samhain and ancestry worship that we covered on last week, I want to just quickly just touch on ghost money. You heard me. Ghost money. So uh, as Samhain, we might leave out a nice beverage for an ancestor or perhaps a particular cake they liked. In Taiwan, they do something a little bit different. They do actually leave offerings as well like that, but they, um, they also burn money. Now, this isn't actual money, which took me a long time to figure out. They buy fake money and they burn this for their ancestors so that they have currency in the afterlife, which I love. They don't just do this though for ancestors, they also do it to appease other spirits, especially malevolent spirits, like a bribe. My husband and I used to do these long-distance cycles over several days, and in one of them, when we were in the north of the island, which is the inspiration for Spirited Away, by the way, we see these men throwing money off into the sea, and they stood there over these rugged cliffs, just throwing money into the wind. It, it, it's ghost money. And we asked what this was all about, and this was to appease the sea spirits, so that they don't flood the island, so that the fishermen yield to good catches, and the sea doesn't drown anyone. I love that there are these long-standing pagan traditions that have existed within such a modern society that still hang on today, I love that the country clings to this, and I hope that when I visit again, it's all still there. Talking of visiting again, this is where my husband and I went on our honeymoon. When you were allowed to travel again, start saving. I can't recommend going there enough. So why bring Taiwan into this, Rowan? Well, I have this very strange thing where when I see anything Taiwanese, whether that's the food, the flag, the president, movies filmed there, I feel this strange sort of affiliation, nationalistic pride. I, I know that makes no sense, or does it? Do you have to be born somewhere to be part of its culture? My friend who still lives there has two kids that are now 14 and 18, and they've lived there all their life. They, they're they blonde-haired, blue-eyed, part Canadian, part British, but they call themselves Taiwanese they've only ever known Taiwan and Taiwanese culture. They speak fluent Mandarin. However, people they come into contact with say, well, no, you can't be Taiwanese. You're white. So does that mean culture is bound to skin colour? And that's kind of what we'll be exploring a little bit more in detail as we look at appropriation, cultural appropriation in contemporary neo-paganism, witchcraft, uh, the craft in general, and paganism in general, so we'll be, we'll be getting into a little bit of that today. Right, I hope you're ready for this, because I sure as hell aren't. I'm diving into cultural appropriation in the craft, and I know this is going to peeve someone off. I know I won't cover all perspectives. Covering culture and belief systems are far-reaching abstract concepts sometimes, and I'm not going to please everyone. But that's not what we do on this podcast, is it? i hope some of this discussion today gives you a moment to think pause and reflect do continue the conversation over on social media at sotw with rowan and i can foresee this episode having a part two at some point i will be drawing a lot of my information from several sources some of this has been published in journals and others are opinion pieces online Uh, Predominant evidence though, um, some of the quotations and citations that I'll be using will be drawn from the arguments that are in the thesis by Catherine Quotlieb's Cultural Appropriation in Contemporary Neopaganism and Witchcraft. So what is cultural appropriation Rowan? You keep using the word, tell me what it is. Some define it as the act of taking things from other cultures without showing or acknowledging that culture, But that's just the tip of the iceberg, really. Beyond that, there is an underlying problem. This idea that the person taking it has the authority, and more importantly, the power to do so. They are more powerful than the person they are appropriating from. It's also suggested that it's done without the consent of the group. It it hasn't been gifted to that person. Instead, it's been taken. In addition to this, cultural appropriation can be seen as doing harm from the group. That it has been appropriate from. So, you know, I, I'm talking like perpetuating, so I'm talking things like perpetuating stereotypes, for example. To make sure you have some cultural context of me, I am a white British cis male, my grandparents are Scottish and Irish, and that's it. It doesn't really go anywhere other than Scotland and Ireland. You know, at one point they, they emigrate to Canada and the States, but that's it, um, which is why I'm always really drawn to a lot of Celtic practice. My interest in the concept of cultural appropriation, my interest in the concept of cultural appropriation, is one that arises when I think about my son. He shares White British and West African heritage. His skin colour is different to mine, and his heritage is different to mine. I can explore his culture. I can consider, regard his culture, the parts that aren't British. That is, but I often feel that I can't fully. I can't fully share his culture, perhaps. You know, for me to recreate that culture for him would be cultural appropriation in my mind to some extent. And I feel like I would be, I'd be cherry picking his culture for him, for what fits my Western sensibilities. We explore his culture through media, through books, songs, and documentaries to enrich our understanding. Some may argue that by being, by him being my son, I am invited into the culture. And I agree. There was an invitation for me to share that, but I feel that I don't have true agency to create that culture for him. As I said, you know, this is cherry picking experience that I, that I would instinctively have, that I would really battle against. I can only explore it, and I hope in time we will meet people along the way who can support us in creating that culture for him or with him, with him would be better, should he want to identify it with it. You know, it's it's his choice at the end of the day. One word that I hope to return back to throughout this episode is the word cultural diffusion. Like smoke or tea in water, it has a flow, an intermingling. Distinct from appropriation, it doesn't involve one group exercising power over another. This is more natural, it's blended. Many things over time have taken this form, you know, were bonfires culturally appropriated from pagan practices by James I? Was that a diffusion, a blend of practices? At the core of this argument in cultural appropriation is the idea of colonialism. You know, hearkening back to the days where white countries landed on foreign shores to populate, enslave, and westernize. Appropriation does exactly this. It's not always consensual. It takes and it uses what it wants. By appropriating in the craft, are we perpetuating these old oppressive systems of colonizing, of taking? In this podcast, we cover a lot of history pre nineteen hundred. So, you know, I'm just going to go over to the 1960s here. Ooh, we haven't gone there yet. And by the 1960s, the variety of alternative spiritualities and occultist practices kind of sprung up, died. And they morphed over the last century or so, became what we generally refer to as the New Age movement. In 1954, Gerald Gardner published a book titled Witchcraft Today, in which he claimed to have come into contact with a contemporary coven of witches practicing a pagan religion that had survived several centuries of Christian domination. He built up a following around his work, leading to the formation of the religion we currently refer to as Wicca. Wicca continued to grow in popularity through the late 20th century. Various different branches of Wicca developed in the decades following the religion's inception. The the neo-pagan community then continues to grow, helped by the advent of new forms of communication and technology more importantly as well. few religions were were likely so fundamentally influenced by the advent of the internet as neo-paganism. Whereas traditionally, religions were community-based, with one's religion being predetermined by the place in which one was born, you know, the the radical individualism of the Enlightenment and the information buffet of the internet having undercut that traditional pattern, we have this globalisation of the craft and intermingling. I can be quite, I'm going to be quite critical about this study that was taken out in 2007. Charbonneau. They go to a neo-pagan festival and carry out a, a bit of a census. And in this census, in, it was in, actually it was in 2003, this, this kind of census going on, 90.8% of the respondents identified as Caucasian there at this festival, and 80% identified as Celtic. There was another study in the 1990s, similar, uh, where we see that 89% of those responding to the question about ethnicity being neo pagan indicated that they were white. Less than 2% in each instance said they were African American, Native American, or Hispanic. The thing to remember again is that these were done at neo pagan festivals. So, you know, what does that even tell us? The other thing to remember is that this is neo pagan, not witches, not pagans. Pagan essentially refers to any non Abrahamic religion, Buddhist you were pagan. And I think that's, that's, that's worth having in mind when we think about how the craft is using culture and who is doing it. You know, though witches relish this idea that their religion is diverse, from an ethnic standpoint, the community from some of the data we have still appears to be dominated by white people. Celtic imagery and supposedly Celtic beliefs are commonplace in many forms of modern witchcraft, and the reason for this may have less to do with aesthetics and more to do with managing whiteness. It may be because the Celts are generally thought of as the conquered people. They were conquered at least partially by the Romans, and later the Celtic countries, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. They were conquered by the English. The Celtic people are often seen as victims, Particularly in the United States. So identifying with them allows a modern white American to identify with a victim narrative. Therefore, citing Celtic heritage is a way of negotiating a privileged position in society. I'm white, but that doesn't mean that I'm oppressing anyone. My ancestors were Irish. Perhaps beyond that, identifying with a specific, preferably oppressed European ethnic group allows a modern witch to also identify more closely with a specific culture, instead of just being yet another white American, yet another white British person. Basic witches. Look, look at that episode again. I do wonder though, you know, whether this still applies to things like Eastern European folklore. If I was to use aspects of that folklore within my craft, would someone then say I was appropriating um, you know, even though I'm using something from white heritage, even if it's not my own heritage, and some part of me thinks I would be less likely to be called out for that. And I'd be interested to know more about that. Why are people appropriating? And I, I think at, at the core of it, fun is is part of it. You know, people find it enjoyable. They, they may not feel a particularly deep connection to that culture. You know, eclecticism is fun. It allows creativity, exploration. You know, and in exploring your new self-cultural appropriation in theory and practice by Vince Stevens, Stevens explains that the, the benefits of taking on what he calls the 26 Explorer mentality, which he defines as simply just admitting we weren't born in the cultural territory we're interested in and exploring in full as we try to make it our own. And and this is this is why I bring up Taiwan yeah you know, i wasn't born in this cultural territory however i do enjoy exploring its culture and i do feel that the culture should be that shared and fun perhaps and and that comes down to the argument is as, as to what what is it that you are appropriating is it a closed religion actually is it something that has um initiatory practices do you have to be initiated do you have to be invited into that religion um, or is it something that is open? And we'd consider something like uh, like Christianity is quite an open religion. Um, you can attend mass and take part. But there are still actually initiations that are part of it. Um, I'm thinking communion, for example. You're taking the blood and body of Christ. There is a phrase that is used within the thesis. And I've mentioned it already. And it's one that, I, that I'd really like to draw your attention to again. And, and that is the idea that spirituality treats the religions of the world as if they were a religious buffet that is there for our pleasure and sometimes i feel and and i'm cautious because i'm i'm actually passing an opinion and judgment here this is can be particularly quite true of wicca others may see this as quite a colonial way of thinking the world is our buffet and we have the power to take it and consume it from others One of the most wonderful things about growing up in a progressive Western society like America or the UK is that things are shared. The great American dream. Assimilation, some might say. Cultural assimilation. The need to to merge, integrate, and create a conglomerate. It is then more difficult, perhaps, as a Westerner, to let go of this idea that culture is so malleable, changeable, shareable, because we are the ones in our society that decided it should be that way. Is this an echoing of colonialism? I shared my ways forcefully with you. I shared my cultural practices with upon you. So why don't you share your cultural practices with me? Hmm. In the West, Culture is often seen as something that can be absorbed. You know, the Romans taking on the architectural style and mythology of the Greeks, or mixed the English adapting French style of dress and enforced the English forcing the Irish to speak their language wherever necessary. But it's impossible to perfectly replicate the practices of an ancient people, you know, especially those of illiterate societies. One of my Instagram friends, shout out, uses the word misappropriation, and I think that this is one of the most important words for us to hang on to today. It is here where the problems lie. It's the misuse, the misrepresentation, um, and that's quite interesting. You know, we're, we're recreating sometimes within the craft ideas that haven't been well recorded, and unfortunately, there is no living pagan cultures in Europe outside of neo-paganism. The only way. To find pagan cultural material is to look to other non-European cultures for guidance, and that's why so many modern neo-Pagan Celtic practices are suspiciously similar to those of Native Americans or Buddhists or Hindus. Some may argue against that. Do it. And this is that, that section. There is something that I've read from this thesis, and um, I, I my mind is now thinking back to the Gerald Gardner situation of, of, of coming across this, this uh, pagan community who have prevailed through Christianity. Would some, uh, is there someone out there who would argue against that? I'd like to know, because that's not that, that's a gap in my research that I'm unsure of at this point. The, the idea of looking to other historical religions, is that because people feel that the craft won't seem legitimate if it doesn't come with this well-steeped history? I, I do feel that there is a notion in Western culture that a religion has to be old, to be legitimate. I do like to think in a lot of analogies and metaphors, I'm, I'm by no means am I a poet, um, but I do like to simplify things. I like to create things. So taking the abstract and you're know, making something concrete works really well for me in understanding things. And um, I'm thinking of a gift, a gift that represents my culture, my heritage, my mum. And I, I've i got things in there like, like first footing, maybe that's in there, bonfires, salt cleansing and so on. And I can, I can give this gift to someone. I can share it. And it's likely that I will share it with my son. The gift was given to me by my mum and the gift was given to her by her grandparents. And when we are given a gift, we give thanks to the person who we receive it from. And that's just straight up politeness. But what happens when someone takes that gift from me? I didn't give it to them. And now they're sharing that gift with others. But instead, what's in the box wasn't what was handed down to me. They've changed it. And they've changed it into something else. And now people's perspectives of me, my culture, my heritage have now changed as a result. Misappropriation. Then what about, you know, actual items across cultures. I mentioned incense in Taiwan, and I I didn't light any incense at temples, not once. I observed others doing it, I could see how they did it, how they bowed, how they placed it upon the altar, but I never replicated it. I didn't fully understand the why, even though I knew the how. However, when I was in India, I was at a temple, and I was invited to take part in a celebration. Incense was lit for me, and I was shown how to participate. This is different. This was an invitation. A gift was shared. Some of the main objects that come up with regards to appropriation often things like uh, white sage, pay, um, palo santo, so, uh, and uh, and dream catchers. And I think at the heart of it, uh, the the problem, the problematic area here comes from commerce. Who is receiving the money for native craft? Is capitalism profiting from indigenous culture? But more importantly is it stealing income from that culture's objects? I do think that can go too far though. I read on Tumblr an example, um, this was back in 2016, that the practice of making and using black salt can only belong to hoodoo practitioners, as this is where it originated. This is where things become quite problematic, in my opinion. As another Instagram friend pointed out, cultures across time have a diffusion of cultural or even sociological behaviours. Who really owns these? can they truly be belonged? Can I really steal a belief? What about karma? This is a loaned concept from Hinduism. Is that appropriation? Yoga? Is that ours to practice? Chakras? If this is a core human concept, can't we all share its knowledge? And I think yes. I think yes, we can where it becomes a huge problem is when it is profited and miscommunicated, such as urban outfitters selling chakra perfumes. That is a no from me. That's just a no. Smudging is one that seems to be very triggering on the internet. And um, the argument is that the word smudging refers to a specific. Elaborate ritual that is exclusive to Native Americans. And so the term is unavailable to outsiders. People are instead encouraged to either call their own practice of cleansing things with smoke, smoke cleansing, or sensing. So, what about spirit animals? Another Native American word. This still remains the idea of a spirit guide or a spirit animal. You know, could, could we be calling these our familiars? Maybe more appropriate. Yes, I think. So are we saying that we can't use the same word for something we have a shared belief in? This is where I'm stuck maybe. In my job I would always recommend students to define vocabulary using an academic source and never dictionary.com. and that's because an academic source will give a contextualized history and knowledge of the word you are using in the correct context for how you wish to use it. I think then, as a practitioner, we need to be defining our practice from the accurate, contextualized perspective on which we are drawing our practice, perhaps. <laughs> but I, I, And I think, you know, if we're getting into semantics, you know, think about how a community uses a word. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go there, I'm going to talk about the N-word. And it's funny that even, you know, I, I can't, I, I can't even bring myself to use the word. Within a community, Is it deemed acceptable to use it amongst people within your peers of your community who use it as a word of empowerment? Is it then okay to use that word outside of that community? And and the answer, as agreed, is no. No, you can't. As a white male, you cannot use that to refer to a black male. But a black male could use that to refer uh, to another black male. So what I think some of us need to be considering is this word smudging and its appropriateness, and its misappropriation, when we take it out of its context. Think of it that way. No one's saying that you are this terrible person for doing it. People are, are, are asking you to consider context, I think. What about this argument then, that, that you need a specific bloodline? I see this coming up more and more these days in the craft community, and I, I was one that fell privy to it. This idea of lineage and someone having more of a power over another due to their craft bloodline. It kind of goes back to this need to make the craft historic and ancient in order to have some sort of validity. I feel that telling people that my mum was a practitioner of the craft helped give me more credibility. It doesn't. I'm sorry, everyone out there, I have, feel like I have a real strong opinion on that one. It doesn't. It it means nothing. The underlying assumption is inherently flawed because A, there is no evidence for any sort of religious gene carrying a specific set of spiritual beliefs down through generations. That was something I covered in the podcast with Eleanor when we talked about um, the Jewish faith and this misconception around genes and DNA and the Germans being able to differentiate between the Jewish and the Germanic because of the idea of genealogy, but there is nothing in there that is a religious gene. B, if, if, if there was a religious gene, All Europeans, many Africans, most Native Americans would be genetically predisposed to be Christian since the last several generations of those races have been heavily Christianized. Imagine I have been studying Taiwanese culture for the better half of 20 years and I've been living there too, but my best friend who was brought up in England, never lived in Taiwan, had a Taiwanese grandfather, but has no interest and has never engaged with Taiwanese culture whatsoever. Who then has greater agency to speak on behalf of the Taiwanese culture? Is it me or is it my friend? Often people will justify their borrowing by arguing that they're operating off a universal belief structure that existed for all pagans in the past. One example of this is core shamanism. Core shamanism is essentially the idea that shamanism can be reduced down to a series of non-culturally specific practices, beliefs and positions in society that are accessible to anyone who wishes to be a shaman. One primary tactic people use to justify cultural appropriation is to claim that they have some connection, and affiliation to that culture that they are appropriating from. I think at the heart of this problem now is exactly the thing that is bringing us all together on this, it's the internet culture can be reduced to a few minutes in a tiktok an image with 30 hashtags on an instagram the term gypsy used to persecute uh, romani people is now used by countless brands to market a bohemian look it's now a hashtag to market a bohemian look you know through fortune telling and crystals and i see the perspective that the craft is becoming globalized and with it culture is being diffused but it's also being misrepresented. I see that capitalism has identified culture as profitable and again is misrepresenting. I read this from uh, kitchenwitch.substack and and it was this, it was, to decolonize witchcraft, we must become informed about the origins of magical practice and give proper credits to the cultures where they originate. And perhaps that's, that's what we need to hang on to, is the credit. Go back to that idea of the gift, the thanks that you give for it. There's, there's something that I, else that I read on there, there, and I have this kind of skeezy problem with this phrase, and it, I see it around social media a lot. It's, um, we are the daughters of the witches they couldn't burn. I feel that it perpetuates a few myths. Number one, that all witches were burnt. They were mostly drowned or hung. Number two, all witches are women. Been there, done that. Check the podcast episode out. Number three, witchcraft is inherited. It isn't. Number four, it has a rich, vibrant, and singular history to draw from. It doesn't. I am an eclectic witch. I do resonate with certain cultural practices that aren't Irish or Scottish. I do read about them, but I don't practice them. Would I practice something from another culture? Maybe. Yes. Perhaps. (laughs) You you you're wanting a concrete answer then, weren't you? You could say I appropriate Taiwanese culture by using the language, cooking with the food. You, You could go that far. Should you want it? If I was to offer advice for those of you who are maybe starting out in the craft or reflecting on your craft at this point, I would say start with your heritage. If you can, someone like my son may may find that more problematic where he doesn't have people available to question about his, his particular heritage. But so, so if you can question who are your ancestors and what did they practice, what was practiced within that region of your ancestors, start there before anywhere else As I mentioned, the living pagan religions of the world are those easier to appropriate because the information on those cultures are more readily available. Do the hard work. Journey on your own path of self-discovery first before you copy what someone else is doing. I have struggled so much making this episode. (laughs) I know that as soon as you start mentioning culture in the craft, it becomes an ugly. Discussion. I do, however, think that it is integral that I navigate this for myself and for you as a listener. It's difficult also putting that down into words, especially words that are recorded and can be used against me. My opinion, like my craft, is malleable and will change. If I had said something today that has been worded from a place of ignorance or privilege, let me know. There is no malice. As a white male, I am navigating a diverse world with my dual heritage son figuring out how I can communicate and represent culture with authenticity. So stay social with me over at SOTW with Rowan and look after your mental health in these next coming weeks as we go down into lockdown two and the presidential elections are announced. Enjoy your bonfire night, your Guy Fawkes night tomorrow, um, however that may look. I have no idea how that's going to look Um, You will be hearing from me next on the 18th of November. Stick around at the end of the episode for your bonus spell where I will be offering a bit of a mental health mood booster as things lock down and as the nights grow shorter. You've been listening to Season of the Witch with Rowan Oaken. Don't forget to stay witchy, bitchy, sassy and classy. Welcome back to our bonus spell this week, where we are thinking about mental health. Remember, always seek professional advice and guidance for mental health, where you can, where you can build a strong support network around you. Spells can help give you a sense of ownership over your mental health, but working with an expert when it's too much can help overcome those blind spots in your own understanding. I'm not a medical professional, but I do believe in the powers of the healing mind. I've been on fluoxetine, citalopram, and another one. None of these really worked for me, as I don't think chemical imbalance was completely my problem. For me, it was time, thought, and my own inner saboteur. I'm going to give you two spells today, for two different purposes. The first is a bit of a mood boost, when you need a kick up the butt, and the other is a grounding, when you can sense that your mind is, is wandering across that dark corridor, searching through every door that you don't want to look into. So let's start with number one, our mood boost. I find that it, it's really hard in the winter to, to get my boost back. You know, I talk about seasonal affective disorder a lot on here. The, the sun isn't there to fill me up. I'm such an earthy person. I love the sun. The sun makes me thrive, and I often joke that I think I photosynthesize. For this spell, we're going to be thinking about correspondences. A nice easy one for this is heat. Use this spell when you need a pick-up You're a bit lost in your day. Maybe you're feeling a little stale. First, clap your hands together as loud as you can and rub them. When you rub them together, you will feel the heat of the friction. Heat your hands up in the warmth. And then, when you are super toasty, hold them onto your face and feel the heat from your hands radiating into your skin. Imagine the warm glow of the sunshine filling you with light and positivity, recharging you up like a battery you want to supercharge it? Yeah, you do. After you clap, say something you are grateful for in your life and say it into your hands. Catch it. Then rub your palms and repeat the process of warming up your face with it. Recharge yourself with that gratitude. Weirdly, just like doing this, it makes me smile. Maybe it's because I know it kind of looks a little bit silly, but that's kind of part of it too. You know, they're having fun with it. And there's a nice little no BS spell for you. Let's move on to number two. So um, lockdown may have have grounded you to your home, uh, but it may not necessarily mean you are actually grounded in your mind. Now, I'd like to, to think I'm quite a grounded, earthy person, but I do have the worst racing mind sometimes Um, I described before it like a corridor, I have this strange habit of walking along this corridor in my mind, reminding myself of the things that might have gone wrong, or might go wrong, things I have to do, things I haven't done. And to help break that cycle, what we're going to do is a bit of a, it's a bit of a guided meditation. Ideally, with grounding, you are connected to the earth. It was minus degrees this morning, so I am not taking my shoes off outside. That's not a thing this time of year. For me grounding doesn't always mean touching nature it's about being present what you're going to do is you're going to get yourself somewhere comfortable if that's outside great if not that's fine too spend some time focusing on your breathing this is normally where i release my gritted teeth my shoulders are normally up by my ear holes get them down i'm frowning i spend so much of my day frowning it's awful Shake that shit off. Just listen to your breath. How is it different today? At this point, my mind is normally wandering around those corridors, and I want you—I want you to come there with me too. Okay? Stand in those corridors with me. You're in that corridor, so you can see it. Look! Look at all those doors. Look at all of them. Now, instead of going one by one and opening them, watch what happens. Open them all now. Open all of them. They're dark inside. It's kind of scary. Maybe you can hear some of them. It's okay though. I'm here. Okay. Take my hand if it's too scary. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through it. We're going to walk through it together if you have to. I don't have to be there. You don't need me. It's fine. When you start walking, you, you notice a door at the end of the tunnel. And it's a door that you'd never actually realized that was there before. And that door is open too. But at the end of the tunnel is a light. A light that is so bright, it sort of makes everything around you seem darker. So dark that it's actually too hard to see the doors. And as you walk through the darkness, you may hear things from the doors. You may look, and that's fine. But remember, you're still walking forwards with me. We get to the end. And we step out. The light, it's, it's a little bit blinding at first. But soon around you, you find yourself stood in the warmth, the green, the earth. You may even notice your feet. You're grounded here in your mind. Almost part of the earth. This is a space you can come to and reconnect with when you are feeling stuck in your own mind's corridor. Spend as long as you need to here. And when you're ready, you don't need to go back through the corridor. You can just slowly open your eyes, knowing that your mind is grounded in a safe space. And there we have it. Two little bonus spells to keep you going. Let me know on social media how you keep boosted during these difficult times. Thank you for stopping by again. It's been great as always. You've been listening to Season of the Witch with Rowan Oaken. Don't forget to stay witchy, bitchy, sassy and classy. And I'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.